Glad you guys could make it to this special equip class where we talk about the controversial subject of dating. Uh, and not only that, though, but we're talking about chemistry and compatibility in dating. An even more controversial subject uh, underneath the, the, the larger topic. Uh, let me introduce to you guys Deepak Reju. Here he is. Uh, a number of us got the opportunity to visit you guys or visit you at Lighthouse in relation to the discipling uh, retreat that they let us join in on. So I was very blessed by that, and the folks that I talked to uh, were as well. So thanks for teaching on that. Uh, Deepak, you were married to Sarah. How long have you been married? Fifteen years. Fifteen years, okay. Longer than most of us here. Most of us, except for Nicholas's dad. And, um, and uh, how many kids do you have? Five. And what are their ages? Twelve, who's back here. Okay. Um, ten. Uh, uh, seven. Five. And three. Okay. And number three is our last one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people ask me the ages of my children, and I oftentimes... Am lost <laughs> in the answer. So, brother, thank you so much. Um, if you guys didn't know, Deepak serves as a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Uh, they have known the Ings for a number of years, 13 years. Is that right? And uh, I knew Deepak. I met Deepak um, at Southern Seminary. And uh, then we sort of touched base regularly. I think that's going to continue to fall. Robert, do you mind grabbing another uh, yeah. stand? Thank you. Yeah, so I met Deepak uh, in Southern, at Southern Seminary. He was, I think, the first person that I met at Southern. And uh, do you remember that meeting? I don't, but I'm sure it was a good meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was checking out the seminary, and Mark Dever had arranged that. I talked to him and Greg Gilbert and then some others. Um, and it was a very useful time. So thank you. Yeah, happy to do it. You should, you should, you should grab a handout if you haven't gotten one already. They're right here on the edges. That'll actually help you, because uh, I've tried to put in here the different um, key phrases or um, scripture references that we'll, um, we'll go through. Thank you for that. How's the height? Yeah, perfect. Okay. Okay, well, let me, um, let me pray for us as we just get started. Lord, thank you for the chance we have to think together um, about dating, about especially chemistry and compatibility. Thank you for the ways in which you work in our life. Pray, Lord, that you'd help us think wisely now together. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, uh, the closing words of the book of Proverbs. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Our culture often talks about the alarm of, of, of beauty and charm. And as Christians, do we just ignore what the culture has to say on these subjects? Do we pretend it doesn't exist? You know, as Christians, we often talk about character and the importance of character in the Christian life. That it matters, and it matters more than looks and personality. 
but we'd be wrong if we pretend that the biblical message to us as Christians is basically charm, bad, character, good. It's kind of what we feel like we hear in church all the time. Charm, bad, character, good. But that's not entirely how the Bible sees it. And the mindset leaves us confused as to what to do with attraction when you're actually attracted to someone with someone's beauty, whether it's physical beauty or especially beauty of their personality. What do you do with all those things? Because that's a part of our experience as we interact with people, especially as we're considering dating and getting married. We need to understand the value God places on beauty and charm on subjects like that, or as we're going to refer to them, chemistry and compatibility. Those are the two key words I'm going to use. Um, Only when we can see things through God's eyes will we value them appropriately when we consider getting married. So how do you think about chemistry? That's the way you're attracted to a person, whether that's physically or emotionally or otherwise. And how do you think about compatibility? Uh, That's the degree to which you feel your personalities are a natural fit for each other. Well, more important, how does God think about these things? The world talks about them often. The world actually makes a big deal of these things. Does God have a perspective on chemistry and compatibility? Well, that's what we want to talk about. Uh, You see there, on your handout there, what does the Bible say about chemistry? Well, anyone who thinks that the Bible doesn't value passion and chemistry in marriage, just hasn't ever read Song of Songs. Desire and attraction run through the book, virtually every verse. Emotional attraction, physical attraction. So just listen to the bride, chapter 5, verse 16. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And then the beloved in chapter 4, verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister and my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes and with one jewel of your necklace. So is that bloodless and passionless? No, actually, absolutely not. There's some serious chemistry going on as you read these verses, or as you read through the book of Song of Songs. Desire is a wonderful thing in marriage. So there's an emotional attraction here, a desire to be together and be close. And there's a physical attraction here. The two crave to be physically intimate with one another, to be close and have sex with each other. Well then, it's in the Bible, right? Compatibility, chemistry, desire. Um, So is this what we should be looking for? You know, that emotional spark on that first date. For those of you married, you remember this? Those of you who are thinking about it? When you sat across from each other and stared into each other's eyes, what what seemed like for hours? Is that what the Bible's talking about? Is dating takeaway from the Song of Songs basically that emotional spark or that physical spark when you can't get your mind off of how that person looks? Whether it's he or she, just thinking about them again and again. Is that what the Bible is talking about? Of course, with some good character and fear of God thrown in, we might be just fine as we put all these subjects together. Well, we want to think about chemistry and compatibility, and I want to start with two cautionary notes. First, about how we think about chemistry. 
two cautionary notes on how we think about chemistry. You see that first one there on the top of page two. Caution number one, chemistry is more cultured than something that's innate to a relationship. Uh, one thing that should make us pause is that quite often the Bible describes desire in marriage. It, when it does that, it uses imperative language, not aspirational language. In other words, desire, even sexual desire, isn't something you look for. It's something that's commanded of you. Listen to the words of Proverbs chapter 5. To the young husbands, let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the life of your youth, the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Uh, not look for someone who intoxicate you with her love, but you see that wife of yours? Be intoxicated with her love. Be intoxicated with her love. That's imperative language, not aspirational language. Talk to any wise Christian couple, what you'll hear is that attraction isn't something simply they started with, but it's something that they've actually built over the course of time. Yes, you know, I, I was attracted to my wife when I first met her, and as we dated and got married, I was very attracted to her. But how much more so now, after I've seen her loyalty over the course of now 15 years? as we've actually had children together and moved around the country with each other, and how we've worked through hard things and come out on the other end, still happy and engaged and loving one another. Recently, the Washington Post, there was a story of a man whose wife had hired a photographer to take some racy photos of her, airbrush out all the flaws, and then present the album to him as a gift. And he wrote the photographer a letter, and the Washington Post ran the letter. And it was very instructive. I think it makes my point beautifully. Here, here's what the husband wrote in the letter to the photographer. He said, when I opened up the album that she gave me, my heart sank. These pictures, while they're beautiful, and you're clearly a very talented photographer, they're not my wife. You made every one of her flaws disappear. And while I'm sure this is exactly what she asked you to do, it took away everything that makes up our life. When you took away her stretch marks, you took away the documentation of my children. And when you took away her wrinkles, you took away over two decades of our laughter and our worries. And when you took away her cellulite, you took away her love of baking and all the goodies that we've eaten over the years. I'm not telling you all of this to make you feel horrible. You're doing your job, and I get that. I'm actually writing you to thank you. Seeing these images made me realize that I honestly do not tell my wife enough how much I love her and adore her just as she is. So she hears it so seldom that she actually thought these photographed images are what I wanted and needed her, her to look like. I've got to do better as a husband. And so for the rest of my days, I'm going to celebrate her in all her imperfections. Thanks for the reminder. That is a far more realistic description of attraction in marriage, more so than anything you're going to see on a Hollywood screen. It's not like you look for 
the most chemistry you've ever felt with someone and hope it'll actually last forever in marriage. No, chemistry is something you hopefully start with, but most of all, it's something that will actually grow over the course of time in marriage. You see there, caution number two. Attraction is not always good. Can anyone tell me where the word desire first appears in Scripture? Genesis 3. Yeah, what does it say there in Genesis 3? Desire for the husband. That's 3.16, though. There is another term where it's actually even earlier. The fruit. Yeah, what does it say? It said, Eve saw the fruit and it was desirable. Genesis 3.16. And what did she do after that? She took it and she ate it. Sometimes we're attracted to the wrong things. So that deep desire you feel for the person you're dating, I would say it's not always a trustworthy guy. Culture says, let your heart be your guide. Whatever you feel and you desire, run with it. Because that's good for you. What does the Bible say? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it springs life. Proverbs 4.23 Desire for that person you're dating is good, but something we should view with a degree of skepticism. So now, what do we do with all of this? You know, these two cautions with attraction and chemistry, let me just give you four implications I think we can get as we think about this. Number one, mature in what you're attracted to. You shouldn't and frankly can't ignore attraction when you're dating. But ideally over time, you're increasingly attracted to what's most worthy in a person. Over time, you're increasingly attracted to what's most worthy in a person. Some of this will come naturally as you simply grow in Christ. Becoming more Christ-like will actually renovate your desires, give you more godly desires to follow, and you can grow in those godly desires. And so as you grow in wisdom, you'll grow in what you're attracted to. And as you identify idols in your life, like idolatry of comfort, idolatry of sex, idolatry of money, idolatry of security, and many other examples, you grow in what you're attracted to. But growth in what you're attracted to also involves being careful with what influences you. So I, our, our congregation, a thousand people gather on Sunday morning, half of our congregation is single. And so I talk to a lot of single men every week about their struggles with lust and pornography. Uh, I, I work through those conversations, trying to help them understand how the, the influences of lust and pornography shape their desires. You'll be in a really hard place if you're trying to make a decision for marriage if your life has been overrun by those things. Um, is the attraction I feel really real, or is it just something that's been conditioned by all the porn I've looked at? You know, that's an honest question that I hear guys ask me. And beyond influences like that, that are obviously sinful, be wary of how the things you watch or read actually condition what you're attracted to. So, you know, that trashy novel that may not be good for you to be read at all. Or, you know, that extra click 
that you did uh, when you shouldn't have clicked one or two or three steps further. Uh, the things that you watched, you know, the, it may have been a short scene in a movie, and yet it was a scene. And by taking the time to watch it and not pass over it, or even choose to watch that movie to begin with, you, you can't undermine or underestimate how all these things actually influence and affect your desires, what you really want, what you're really going for. If you've held on to an image of a future spouse as some kind of magazine model, no amount of self-talk and dating. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is fleeting. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. No amount of self-talk is actually going to change those wrong desires. God has to change those wrong desires. No amount of self-talk will keep you from being attracted to the wrong things. God has to show you what to be attracted to, what is worthy within a person. You need to sanctify your attraction now. Our motto of how to fill our thought life shouldn't be Google's, which is don't be evil, but it should be God's. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Philippians chapter 4. Number 2, you see there. When you're attracted to someone, ask yourself what you're attracted to in them. Ideally, make that into a conversation with a really good friend. A mentor. Someone who knows you well. And, you know, if you're in love, that's going to be a really fun conversation. Now, granted, your friend or mentor or parent might get sick of having this conversation. Because when you're infatuated with someone, you want to talk about it again and again and again and again. They might honestly get tired of it. But a good way to work through some of these things is to recognize as you talk through it, you've got to think through some of the idols that are affecting your life. You've got to think through some of the wrong desires. You know, a desire for control, a desire for pleasure, a desire to keep people happy, a lust for success. A uh, desire for money, a desire for comfort. Which one of these are affecting you? Which one of these actually shape the way you think or the decisions you make or who you're actually pursuing? Those things are often behind the attraction we feel and we need to identify them as idols that compete with God and repent of them. Number three, you see there, along those lines, be wary of dating if you have gaping holes in your contentedness as a Christian. Are there huge idols in your life that you're grappling with? Well, if that's the case, if any of those idols that I mentioned are things that you think, oh, that's me. I'm really wrestling with that. Well, now may not be actually a great time then for you to go ahead and pursue a relationship. Instead, taking the time to work on those things that are getting severely in your way of a relationship with the Lord and getting a grip on those and repenting of those and working through scripture with those and getting a disciple to speak into those, taking some time. Now, you know, as many conversations I have every year with someone who wants to date someone else, the most frustrating moment for them is probably when I say, not yet. I don't say never, but I say not yet because there are things to work on. There are things that you got to get a good foundation in your Christian life. I've had this number of times where, by the grace of God, a new convert. And the young guy comes to me and he says, okay, I'm a Christian. 
I'm, I'm committed to the Lord. I'm growing. I'm in a small group. I got a discipler. I'm really interested in her. Not yet. No, you got to wait. Why? Why? Because you got to set a good foundation in Christ. That's going to serve you much more over the long term than going into a relationship now, which for some of you, if you're deeply discontent with the Lord, a relationship is going to be a huge distraction on working on some of these things. So, as, as one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, first things first and second things second. Not second things first. Make sure you get your relationship with the Lord in a good place. Not a perfect place. None of us are perfect. But if there are severe idols in your way, then deal with them first. It's going to be nearly impossible for your attraction to that other person not to be conditioned by the seeming ability to meet the idolatrous desires in your own heart. Number four, don't jump ahead physically in your relationship. Song of Songs extols desire in marriage, but listen to the bride's advice for those who aren't yet married. Chapter 2, verse 17. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Okay, so you recognize that, you know, technically cuddling on the couch is not a sin. There's no rule in the Bible against that. But what we're talking about here is awakening the desire. As you begin to awaken the desire, you're awakening something that can only be met as a husband and wife in marriage. And so awakening it too soon is dangerous for you. Once you open the Pandora's box of desire, you won't be able to put them back very easily. And those desires are going to be seriously complicating the question of whether you're attracted to that person for actually good reasons. Well, what does the Bible say about compatibility? Leaving attraction aside, let's look at this other virtue that the world often extols, compatibility. For many, this is what they're looking for in a spouse. Just like with chemistry, the Bible gives us one kind of compatibility that's good and another that's bad. So what's the bad view of compatibility? Well, it's a view that, according to the National Marriage Project, is our culture's main view of compatibility. Above all else, survey respondents said, compatibility means someone who shows a willingness to take me as I am and not change me, end quote. That's what they said. That was the most common request in regards to compatibility. Someone who will fit into my life as it is. As one man put it, if you are truly compatible, then you don't have to change. Well, the basic problem with this view of compatibility is that one of God's plans in marriage is that marriage will change you. Marriage, like every other Christian friendship, has the great goal of Colossians 1.28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So one of the key purposes of a husband laying down his life for his wife, that he might be changed. Or of a wife being washed by the word so that she might be without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, so that she might be changed. Marriage will change you. It will absolutely change you. What happens when two sinners get so up close that their lives rub up against each other? 
And I'm not talking physically, I'm talking emotionally and relationally and spiritually. Well, you come into each other's sin. And you have to find ways to honestly deal with it as Christians. Marriage will change you. Uh, you know, I've, I've often described marriage often as this awkward, self-reflective mirror. <laughs> you start seeing things about yourself that you weren't willing to actually face up to. Now, it's not that as a single adult you can't deal with some of these things too. But there's a kind of pressure when your life is up close with someone else that forces you to face up to things that conveniently you could have avoided, sometimes even for years. The basic problem with that view of compatibility is that one of God's plans is that he will change you. So think for a moment about how you may have bought into this worldview of compatibility. You're looking for someone where the two of you are just a natural fit. Where both of you love the same things and agree on everything. You know, when my wife and I were married, um, in that first year, whenever we were at a restaurant and we picked the same thing off of a menu, we would giggle and laugh. Oh, isn't that cute? We like the same things. Well, we don't pick the same thing off the menu anymore. <laughs> in fact, uh, more often than not, I want her to pick something else now so I can eat her off of her plate, too. <laughs> A relationship where you get to be just who you are. Is that what you really want? A relationship where you don't have to really change that much. But, in fact, you see the other person's sin, so you expect them to be changing a lot. Those things are, uh, are, are fine. Just recognize that um, marriage is intended to change you. Just recognize that's not what marriage will be if you just simply want to be in a marriage that feels good, and fits with you, but doesn't force you to do much about yourself. Does that mean we need to abandon compatibility as a virtue in our relationships? Well, quite to the contrary. In fact, at the beginning of Genesis, where God introduces the idea of marriage, we see that marriage is about compatibility, just a different kind of compatibility. Eve was made to be a helper fit for Adam. Who completes him? She does. Who compliments him? Well, she does. The Bible's idea of the spouse who is compatible isn't so much someone who will leave you just as you are, but someone who completes you. Someone who's complementary to you. Someone who completes all of what God asks of you. Now, what does this look like? And what does it look like to discover that that person you're dating is someone who completes you. Well, Genesis 2, it, in Genesis 2, it's the, com it's the completion for a purpose, a specific purpose. Completion not simply so that Adam can feel nice about himself and feel complete unto himself, but so that Adam can actually do what God asked. Genesis 2, 15, God put Adam into the Garden of Eden and asked him to work it and take care of it. That was the great mandate put upon him to actually be a good steward of the garden which God had put him within. And it's 2.18 where God says, it's not good that man should be alone. So compatibility is for the purpose of ministry on behalf of God. 
So, compatibility for ministry. This guiding framework is in Paul's mind when he writes his famous chapter on singleness and marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's what Paul says to the unmarried. He says, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure undivided devotion to the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 to 35. Paul's quite clear here. He has no marriage agenda or no anti-marriage agenda. No restraints in either direction. He simply wants you to be in undivided devotion to the Lord. So if you remain single, why should you do that? So you have undivided devotion to the Lord. And if you're married, why should you do that? Because you want to serve the Lord better together than if you were apart. That's biblical compatibility. All about our service to the Lord. That's the purpose of being compatible with one another, so that we can ultimately serve God in undivided devotion, whether it's by ourselves singly or together as a couple. So what compatibility mainly isn't? Um, this is a simple concept that a lot of Christian couples grab onto. Well, we should get married because we can do more together than if we were apart. But this is helpful in many ways, but I think can often be misunderstood. Um, so a dating couple will ask themselves, well, how do we figure out if we're better together than apart? You know, what does that look like? Well, usually the answer is, let's do ministry together. Let's find something we can do together and see how it works. So what do they do? Okay, we're going to host a dinner, and we're going to invite friends over. And we're going to see how the whole thing goes. And so they invite some people over, they have a good event, and then afterwards, they sit down and they say, well, I guess the conversation went more smoothly because you were there. Or I guess we had more evangelism in this evening, in that dinner event, because you were there. And they think, uh, well, it seems like, according to 1 Corinthians 7, God's telling us to get married, right? Does that mean we're better together than apart? Well, now, granted, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying don't do ministry things together. Don't actually partner up and figure out how to do good to others by doing it together. But if that's the way, main way you think about 1 Corinthians 7, or about Eve being a helper fit for Adam, I think we're misunderstanding how life actually works. As a married couple, we'll certainly do ministry together. We'll do lots of ministry together. But you're still spending lots of time as a married couple apart. There are many days of the week in which you're actually not primarily together, but actually primarily apart. And you'll spend very little of the time doing it actually Together, or at least the hypothetical couple, what they just thought about in terms of ministry together. So what compatibility mainly is? The main way that a married couple is more devoted to the Lord together than apart isn't so much what marriage allows them to do, but who marriage allows them to be. The main way that a married couple is more devoted to the Lord together than apart isn't so much what marriage allows them to do, but who marriage allows them to be. 
we too easily think of ministry as a small number of events scattered across the calendar. That's doing ministry together. The more we fill up the calendar, the more, more we're doing ministry together. But in reality, it is everything we do as a couple. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Now let me lay out for you a few categories of what this looks like for how Genesis 2 and 1 Corinthians 7 typically work out in marriage. What it looks like for a couple to actually complete one another. A couple of things here. Number one, marriage teaches you to love a stranger. That is, your spouse. Who you thought you really knew on that wedding day? Who you thought you knew really well because you dated and you'd done maybe premarital counseling and you read books together and you had deep conversations and you talked through things? You've learned so much more since then. Marriage teaches you to love someone who is fundamentally different than you. To understand someone who you don't understand. It teaches you to live your whole life mindful of what another person's thinking or feeling. To be considerate. And for many people, marriage forces them to get outside of their own head, outside of their own personal drama, and learn to truly love someone else. And that will spill over into your devotion to the Lord in all aspects of life. That's one of the main ways that a man and woman are compatible in marriage. They learn to love a stranger. Number two, marriage gives you insight from a different perspective. So my wife's counsel is unbelievably valuable to me. And not just because she's wise and she's gifted and she studies the word. All those things are true, but it's especially because she's different. She's a woman and I'm a man. She sees life differently than I do. And her difference in perspective is hugely helpful for me as she makes observations about life, about things that we're doing together, about people we're interacting with, and notes things that I will actually, honestly, in my cluelessness as a man, will never notice. We had this uh, a couple of weeks ago with two of our children, two of our daughters, who were in bunk beds. And in bunk beds together... Now, we have actually have three girls in one room. There can be a lot of cat fights in that one room. Well, you know, as I'm helping one daughter go to bed and talking to that one daughter, uh, my other daughter was often getting finicky, frustrated, annoyed, making comments, slightly rude, and I wasn't sure what's going on. So I talked to my wife about it after the second or the third night it had happened, and she said, you know what it is? That other daughter is jealous. I thought, jealous? Man, I'm the professional counselor. <laughs> You're, you two have to tell me that she's jealous. Wish I'd figured this out. Uh, so, uh, she said, you just need to address her first. Spend some time with her first. So she's not so jealous. I thought, okay, I, I might be the counselor. I have the degree, but I'm going to try this. Because <laughs> I trust you, and I, I think you're actually much wiser at times with our girls than I am. So I did. That next night, instead of addressing my younger daughter first, I actually went ahead and addressed the other daughter by crawling up into her bed, you know, laying next to her, talking to her for a while, reading something to her, you know, praying for her, doing things I usually did typically second, not first. 
And then I went down and addressed my younger daughter like I usually did first. You know what? It went much better. My wife was exactly right. The older daughter was jealous. She was enormously jealous. And in my cluelessness, I just didn't get it. Three nights in a row, I go, what's going on? I don't understand. I don't understand these girls. What do I do with them? (laughs) My wife goes, she's jealous. Just pay some attention to her first. Oh, you know, how many stories can I tell you where my wife just said, ah, here's what you need to know. I thought, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, a difference of perspective. She's a woman and I'm a man. And how helpful that is, that we God has made us fundamentally different. And you know, that's important to say because in a culture where marriage, the definition of it is rapidly changing all around us, to be able to say fundamentally, I'm a man, you're a woman, we're different, and yet God intends us to be together. That's really important to be able to say. That that difference is fundamental to how God intends marriage to work. That's a good thing. And that's a lot about what God intends in Scripture with compatibility. Number three. Marriage brings the strengths of two different people to every challenge. I make friends fast. Much faster than my wife. But my friendships for years tended to be much more superficial. My wife makes much fewer friends. And yet... Her friendships, noticeably, when, I, when we got married, were richer. They were deeper. They were fuller. So I might be able to bring, you know, a whole household party of people over. That is easy because I make friends everywhere I go. So I can get 30 people in our house in a heartbeat. She had two or three friends she'd invite. And yet, those friends, they've been friends for years. They've been friends. They've walked through thick and thin. They've been friends in which there was real depth and pain and struggle and joy and delight that they had gone through that had bonded them, in which I thought, I I am jealous. I'm really jealous. Because you have these kind of quality friendships that I should actually be working harder to have. Now, it's not like, I don't want you to think I'm like this awkward AWOL friend. (laughs) Now, I have some good friendships, too, but I, I saw how that kind of uh, long range of friends, which I could pull into a household, actually didn't mean that much. Compared to just a few friends in which he had greater depth. I learned a lot in marriage about deeper friendships from my wife. Through marriage, her strengths have complemented my deficiencies, and vice versa. She often jokes, you know, it's not hard for us to host people because I can grab people and get them into our house within a heartbeat. It's great for our hospitality because I can fill our calendar pretty quickly. And she's much more reluctant to do that. And yet she desires to host. She desires for us to be hospitable. And yet I've learned to slow down and now develop relationships at her example and build into those relationships over the course of years. Number four. Marriage allows two people to raise a family. As a father of young children, this is perhaps the most obvious way today where my wife completes me. Ephesians 6 clearly places the weight of raising children on my shoulders. And Genesis 2 clearly places the weight of provision on my shoulders. How can I do all of that? Well, it's because my wife, like a Proverbs 31 woman, has chosen to come alongside of me 
to partner with me and to bear those responsibilities with me so that I don't have to do it all alone. Given my responsibility as a father and then now as a pastor of a thousand-person church, I just wouldn't be able to do it without her. Uh, If my wife didn't play such a huge role in raising our kids, then I would be incapacitated as a pastor. She's busy at home, busy with our children, busy doing many things that are important to our family's life, so that I can actually be even here on a trip in California helping you. She makes a lot of things possible in our life. Well, it's worth noting that because the biblical idea of compatibility is one of complementarity, where we fit together, it's going to look different for a man and a woman. If you were to ask how my wife and I complement each other, I'd point out how she makes up for my deficiencies in my character. Or how she focuses her life on our home so that I can give attention to priorities outside of the home. She gives me wise counsel and advice. In other words, she's my helper. She's my partner. She's my teammate. Now, if you were to ask her some of the same questions, she'd probably point out how I provide a steadying influence on our family's life, how I lead in our home in a Godward direction, whether it's with the word or how I address the children. Uh, In other words, I, I lead the family. I take responsibility for leadership. It's a fundamental part of who I am as a man and leading within not just our church, but particularly our family. So ask the, when you ask the question, are we compatible, you actually need to think through this lens of the roles that we have within marriage, being a leader and being a helper, and whether we're fulfilling those roles and what that looks like for each one of us. So that's the main things I want to say about chemistry and compatibility. Uh, just a couple of lessons to think through. just want to leave a few minutes here at the end for questions for thoughts, for comments, or just anything that you have related to any of these two topics. And my mentor taught me to stand here awkwardly until I actually get some questions, so I'll do that. (laughs) Yes, Jeremy. So you talked about how marriage is usually a lot of strength. So it means in dating, you're kind of never really ever fully able to know who's going on. Uh, but a lot of times in culture, even in church culture, we will date for a long time because I feel like they need to know someone a, a whole lot before they get married. How, how long should they, you know, how much do they need to know in terms of before they get married or anything about engagement? What do they need to know? Yeah, that's a good question. So did you hear Jeremy? No, I'll repeat that. He asked uh, churches, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. How long, basically, do you need to date someone to feel like you know what you need to know in order to get married? And what do you need to know? And, and say that again. And what do you need to know? And what do you need to know? Yeah, um, it's a good question in regards to uh, dating. I, I think people in, in the culture as a whole tend to date a long time. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you know, There's the, the dread of the big M word, uh, people not wanting to get married. So they date for years, uh, some cases. Uh, there's also the fear of really wanting to know the person and know the innermost part of the person, to know everything about the person. And so you feel like if I keep dating them, somehow it will all come out. That's just not true. <laughs> or, you know, uh, they take all the privileges of marriage into dating. So they live as if they were a married couple, including 
uh, pretty free in terms of sex. And so there's no reason why to actually get married if I have all the perks of a marriage in a dating relationship. There's lots of reasons why people date for a long, long time. And I say that it's not just six months or a year. We're talking about two, three, four. I've heard of cases of a gal dating a guy six years, seven years, eight years. Well, you know, I think you can know a lot about a person in a dating process, and especially if you do it in community, where it's not just your perspective, and that's one of the biggest problems. Dating tends to be individualistic, just the two of us, rather than a community affair. How much more valuable for you as a single person to figure out who to date, but for you to have wiser people get to know your relationship and pipe up and say, here's some other things you need to know about the person. Or, here's some things you need to consider that you may not realize you need to know. In that case, if you're doing it within community, I think there's some basic things you need to understand. So, I'll break up dating relationships into four quarters. It's, I mean, here I'm a guy, so I'm going to do a sports analogy, but here we go. Uh, first quarter is, you know, you're just finally getting to know the person. You're just getting to know who they are, what they're like, just starting to spend time with one another. Second quarter, you're starting to actually start to uh, pursue more events, more people, more things, just get more close in the relationship. But third quarter is when you have those hard conversations and talk about the thing that you really need to know over the long term. Things that you may not have dealt with yet. Maybe you have, but if you haven't, you really need to start talking through those things. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, you know, do you want to both work? Um, what do you understand in terms of your roles within the home? What are your theological commitments? What's your view of the Bible? What do friendships look like? What is ministry? What's your future goals? You know, how do you handle conflict? What's your view of finances? Uh, lots of things in which you need to talk through that become really important over the long term in terms of relationship. And then fourth quarter, what happens, so the end of the game is engagement, not marriage. Uh, fourth quarter, you do all those conversations that you haven't already and all the socially appropriate things that you're supposed to do, like meet parents if you haven't met parents yet, uh, in order to check off the last few boxes and then get engaged. That's, that's, that's what it is in four quarters. So that third quarter is really when you have those hard conversations. I'm, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. I've tried to, because I get this question enough in terms of what do we need to talk about in order to get engaged. Well, I've tried to break it down, and I, I call it 12 Fs. <laughs> uh, faith, family, finances, future, uh, fights, uh, foolishness, um, friendship, um, and then a couple of more where I try to put uh, different categories onto what you need to talk about. So I think we could trace out for you distinct categories you should talk through. And then once you've talked through them, yeah, I mean, then go ahead. If you, you're in agreement uh, in the things that you think are important, or if you have a good degree of flexibility in certain categories, either one then you can go ahead and proceed to getting married. People feel like they need to know much more than they really, I think, need to know in order to get married. And so, hence, they date a lot longer. Um, and if you're not sure, it's a really good thing to ask a godly man or woman who's involved in your life. Especially if they're married, because they will have gone down that road. They'll have some clear thoughts. 
on what things you still need to talk about or what things you don't need to talk about in regards to marriage. That's a few thoughts. Other questions? Yeah, tell me your name. DJ. Uh, uh, DJ. Hi, DJ. Yeah, along with your analogy, uh, football analogy, yeah. what about halftime? What about halftime? <laughs> well, there's no break at halftime. You're still dating. Is that what you mean, DJ? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, DJ. You know, what I would say is, um, at the beginning of a relationship, you know, what what happens often is a couple they're ready to date, so they commit to actually dating or courtship, whatever term you want to use, and then suddenly, zoom! <laughs> now we're into each other, and we're all about each other. And what they do is then they actually forget really the rest of their life. And if a friend says to me, "Yeah, he just started dating. We haven't seen him in weeks." Actually, that's a bad sign for me. On the front end of dating, your life actually should be pretty normal, and you're pacing yourself. So early on, you're actually going to be going at it slower, and it wouldn't be surprising over the course of time that there's more time together, there's more emotional attachment, there's more conversations. Uh, But that grows over the course of time. So I wouldn't say intermission is suddenly a break in the relationship. But more so, first quarter, as you're beginning to date, you just really want to still be engaged of all the rest of life. So everything else God has called you to be responsible for, you don't get to suddenly drop. And that includes other relationships and friendships. And if you do, I think that's a bad sign. I think that's a sign that you're rushing too quickly into it, and that you actually need to pace yourself over the course of time. Good. Other questions? Yes, and tell me your name. Gwen. Gwen, and you're Katie's mom. I am. Go. Good to see you again, Gwen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I I just want to say how important it is that in in our church settings we stress purity. And um, because I work in a pregnancy crisis center. Yeah. And it's amazing how many young women come in. Oh, yeah. uh, Oh, I'm a Christian because I get to share the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you having sex with your boyfriend? Um, you, why have you put yourself in a position that now you're pregnant and this ch- child may not have a father uh, around? So I guess I, I, I'm really encouraged when pastors teach that from the pulpit. Yeah. The importance of purity. Yeah, and the importance of looking radically different than the world when it comes to choices of purity, premarital sex, exactly. holiness. All those categories become really important in what it looks like. And that, you know, and I say it two ways. One, we want to fight for that as Christians. And two, if you have messed up, there's forgiveness in Christ. And one other thing, my daughter attends ACB very, very faithfully. When she was dating a guy, she actually had a friend who was her, she just, accountability partner. Yeah. Well, and something that we'll typically do, at least when a, a couple comes in, so I'll see couples for premarital counseling, see couples for marriage, but actually a lot of couples ask to come by and just simply check in as they're dating. 
And so there will be a couple of different couples will come in and just we'll talk about how's it going, uh, talk through things. And um, first thing I'll ask them the first time they come in, who's your accountability and are you talking about purity? And if they don't have someone, well, guess what? That very next time I'm expecting that they have someone lined up. And if they don't have someone, that at that moment I'm going to say, who do you know in the church? Let's go ahead and pick someone right now. You're going to initiate with them at this very moment. Uh, just to get them in a place where they're, they're actually opening up their life to other people for being discipled and talk, spoken in, people speaking into their life and helping them sort through these things. Good. Any last questions? We're about to land the plane. Yes, tell me your name. David. David. Hi, David. Um, I was really hurt by the, the point about how uh, there's idols behind attraction and that's important to be with them now. But you also mentioned you know, the caveat of like, you don't need to be perfect, no one's going to be perfect. Can you talk a little bit about like, like the working on it, how, uh, the importance of working on it and not being perfect and yeah. when dating comes in at that point? Yeah, so, you know, it's a good question, David. On on the one hand, um, you know, because of our doctrine of depravity, we know that none of us, this side of glory, are ever going to be perfect. Period. We're all going to wrestle with sin until we get to glory. But what I was talking about when I was describing that is, is there an idol that has really captivated your life? It, you, you, you can feel the pressure of that idol pretty regularly. That temptation is getting in the way, and so you know that idol will significantly affect your dating relationship. If, if that's the case, then you've got to deal with the idol first. And you might think, oh, you know, it's going to take me years to actually deal with this particular idol. You don't know me. I've been wrestling with this for a long time. Well, yeah, I don't need to know you to know an idol, according to the Bible, is a problem. And so, therefore, you do need to work on it. Now, this is where you trust a mentor, because we enter quickly into the realm of prudence, where a mentor says, okay, you, you are repenting, you are working hard, you're trusting in the Lord, I see a lot of faith in you, this is a good time for you today. So that's where we start getting more specific, yeah, you've got to trust more godly people in your life to help you know, okay, when have I crossed over the line from the idol's a problem to now I'm faithfully fighting the idol. It's still hard, but I'm fighting it, repenting of it, and dealing honestly with what Christianity is, like living by faith. Uh, and, you know, that's why you have, I, I keep saying, dating is not an individualistic affair, it's a community project. It's why you have other people in on your relationships. You let other people be engaged so that you don't have to sort through it by yourself. Okay, well, it's 10.10. I just want to be um, uh, diligent about the times that we've set up for this morning. So let me pray for us so that we can then shift. Lord, thank you for the chance for us to think about chemistry and compatibility, uh, what it means to be in dating relationships, what it means especially to be a Christian and to be faithful in our relationships. Lord, there's a lot of wisdom that's needed as we sort through these topics. Thank you that your word speaks into it. Thank you that there are other believers who have gone before us, who have wisely thought through these things. Help us, Lord, to live wisely and faithfully. We pray in your son's name. Amen.